Well, good morning, West Ridge. Yes, it's true. You don't have to look at the program to know when I'm speaking. You either need to look outside your window to see if it's snow, sleet, hail, or some other natural catastrophe, or look at the calendar and ask yourself, is it a holiday or time change Sunday? And rest assured, I'll be here for you. I get such sympathetic support from the staff here. Um, you know, I emailed Michael yesterday. I said, if this, if this storm is worse than they're predicting, you can use my notes, you can teach. And he made some reference to something freezing over. I lost track of exactly what he said. So then I emailed Pastor Greg, and, you know, I said, if, if it's worse, you might have to pull something out of the file. He said, call Uber, I'm not writing a new message tonight. Well, let's uh, get choked up when I think about their sympathy. Um, Let's talk about one of the brightest people I know. I mean, he is so bright that you could put the collective IQs of Pastor Greg, Pastor Darren, and mine together, and we'd still be 50 points short of his. Now... Grand, that's not saying much, but he's really bright. University of Chicago, Ph.D., speaks three languages, reads five languages. He's a seminary professor for decades, philosopher, theologian, and a very humble, unassuming guy on top of all that. You could describe him as brilliant, well-read, insightful, and... You could use one other word to describe him that would be accurate. Doubter. He struggled all of his life with uncertainty, with doubt, maybe even at times with skepticism. And he's been honest about it. Now, I know there are some of you likely here this morning that you've never had one doubt in your life. You've never had a second thought. You believe it all, that's great, you're happy, and I don't want to disturb you. But if you don't know someone in this world today that's struggling with doubt, you need to get out more often because they're there. I've been working the last year and a half on a three uh, quarter million dollar grant that my university I work for, Lincoln Christian University, received to address the unprecedented loss of faith among 20-somethings in America. It's epidemic. The project's called Room for Doubt, roomfordoubt.com, Room for Doubt Facebook. And in the process of working with that grant, I've learned that in America, where belief is optional, we'd better make a little room for doubt around here. Because too many churches don't. Maybe you grew up in a church like mine. There was a party line about just about everything. You know, this is what you're supposed to believe. This is what you're supposed to say. And here's how you're supposed to say it. And here's the way you're supposed to act. Don't doubt. Don't ask questions. So, the deep doubts, the deep questions were off limits. They were frowned upon. You were castigated for having them in the first place. The problem with that approach is that when doubt is covered up, it never gets... Resolved, and it may resurface in a more toxic form. When it comes to faith, doubt can loom 
large. What if my God is just a cultural creation and my religion is nothing more than a means for society to control me? What if all the new atheists, Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, Sam Harris and others, what if they're right? What if God is not great? What if God is just some psychological defense mechanism that I, along with other weak people, dreamt up in order to survive in a world of hurt and pain? What if religion is the opiate of the people, as Karl Marx so famously wrote? What if life is absurd? And how do I know my prayers are being answered and it's not just coincidence? Maybe you in this room today, or almost certainly someone you know, struggles with that when it comes to believing the gospel message. If we take an honest look around, we'll see seeking skeptics. We'll see honest doubters. We'll see undecided souls. The great novelist Walker Percy, in his novel The Movie Goer, uses the word seeker. In his book, he writes, as everyone knows, the the polls report that 98% of Americans believe in God and the remaining 2% are atheists or agnostics, which leaves not a single percentage point for a seeker. Have 98% of Americans already found what I seek? Or are they they so sunk in everydayness that not even the possibility of a search has occurred to them? Whatever the reason, seekers and doubters, they still haven't found what they're looking for. So this morning, let's, let's leave a little room for doubt. Room number one is labeled doubt defined. The first major misconception about doubt is that doubt is the opposite of faith and it's the same as unbelief. Implied in this view is a view of faith that's unrealistic and a view of doubt that's unfair. Some Christians have been led to believe that in order to have true faith, it has to be doubt-free. Doubt for some ends up being condemned along with unbelief. The root English word doubt means to. So let's define some terms before we go on and we get to ultimately the gospel story that I want to tell you. To believe is to be in one mind about something being true. To disbelieve is to be in one mind about rejecting the same truth, like the new atheists. To doubt is to waver between the two, to believe and disbelieve at once, and so to be in two minds. The heart of doubt is a divided heart. The New Testament uses several different Greek words to portray the doubleness of doubt. One indicates an an inner state of mind so torn between various options that it can't make up its mind. Another word suggests ambivalence, just being up in the air. Still another describes the inner debate of a person who is reasoning with himself, debating with yourself. Have you ever debated with yourself and lost? Some of us have an inner atheist that whispers in our ear from time to time. A final word means doubt in the sense of hanging back, hesitating, or faltering. It expresses what we mean when we say, 
Mm, I've got some reservations about that. The combined force of all these phrases and words is inescapable. If a person is torn between options, unable to make up his mind, or if she is up in the air over something, unsure over which side to come down on, or if she's furiously debating with herself, or hanging back, or hanging on to reservations, that person is nothing if not in two minds. That is the essence of doubt. So here's the takeaway. Doubt's not the opposite of faith, nor is it the same as unbelief. Doubt is a state of mind in suspension between faith and unbelief. So that it's neither of them holy, and it is only a part of them. Now this distinction is important because it uncovers a major misconception about doubt. The idea that the doubter is betraying faith and surrendering to unbelief. So let me make just a few more distinctions here before we go on. Christian doubt is misgivings about the claims made in the Bible. And when doubt becomes a habit of life, as it will if there's not room for it to be expressed, it converges into something else. Skepticism. Habitual resistance to accepting truth claims. And then there's skepticism on steroids. Cynicism. Cynicism is the radical insistence that all truth claims are unprovable and therefore they're all likely false. Cynics question the motives of almost everyone. So doubt is not the same thing as skepticism, cynicism, fear, or grouchiness, though it can be combined with all these things. The opposite of belief is disbelief. The opposite of faith is the absence of faith. The opposite of doubt is certainty. And by certainty, I mean no possibility of being wrong. Do we know people like that? People that are just so certain of everything? Doesn't matter what question you have, they've got the answer, and they're certain. They are the certain people. They're certain about every aspect of life. They're more certain than Tom Brady is about the amount of air in the footballs he throws. That's how certain they are. And so when you understand it in this way, doubt and faith need each other. Certainty doesn't need faith at all. If I'm certain of something, no possibility of being wrong, then why do I need faith? If I doubt and yet still commit, that's faith. So let's define faith as believing and committing to something despite uncertainty. A few years ago, I, uh, I was about to board a prop plane an ATR turboprop airplane. Which was not a remarkable event, except that it was a plane that was identical to the one that had crashed a week earlier due to icing on the wings, killing everyone on board in northwest Indiana. 
it was a condition that actually led to eliminating operating this plane in cold weather. And of course, I'm traveling, and guess what? There's snow, there's ice, there's sleet. And as I board the plane, a clap of thunder sounded, and lightning streaked through the sky. And at that moment, I had serious doubts about flying on that plane. But I wanted to have faith that it would be safe because I wanted to go home. And so ultimately I acted, I acted despite my doubts and I took a step of faith onto that airplane, fully aware of the doubts that I had in doing so. And so when you make room for doubt, you don't find condemnation, you find compassion. Room number two is labeled, Doubt Defended. I've not heard doubt defended in many churches. And I think because of that, seekers like Walker Percy's moviegoer don't feel welcome. If you're like my brilliant friend, and you're between two minds, and you're here at Westridge today, here's the message you need to hear today. You're welcome here. This is a safe place for you. There's a significant difference between the flippant scoffer and the earnestly seeking doubter. Some are saying with sincerity, I haven't found what I'm looking for, but I wish I could. And so if that's you, take the time you need to sort out your two minds. Too many churches say or imply to the doubter, you must not possibly be sincere or you couldn't doubt. So let's define that attitude along the way also. It's called spiritual snobbery. You can do a light reading of the Gospels and discover that Jesus is much harder on the professional and certain believers of His time, the Pharisees and Sadducees, than He ever is on the battered and doubtful ones. One of my favorite authors, Phil Yancey, writes, I'm also impressed that the Bible includes so many examples of doubt. Evidently, God is more tolerant of doubt than most churches. I want to encourage those who doubt and also encourage the church to be a place that rewards rather than punishes honesty. What a novel concept for the church to be an honest place about everything. Compassionate response to doubt demands listening, not demeaning. Doubters must first see us as listeners, not lecturers. The tendency of someone confronted with a genuine doubter is to retreat behind pious cliches. Well, just pray about it and it'll all turn out okay. Just trust God and everything will be fine. Berating, belittling, and battling rarely fosters belief in anyone. Let's not succumb to snobbery or keeping score over the arguments I've won over pagans this week. There is no scorecard. Carl Jasper says, if churches dared to put themselves in jeopardy, the word 
would be more credible everywhere. Room number three. Room number three is labeled doubt decided upon. Sometimes doubt has to be doubted. There's a kind of knowledge that's different from the knowledge that's gained from reason and science. And this other kind of knowledge is not a contradiction of science, it's just different. For example, for me to say to my wife, Risa, Risa, I love you factually. And I I have a printout here to verify and objectively prove to you and anyone looking on that I love you. I provide for you, I buy you presents, I kiss you goodbye, I let you ride in the car with me out to Elgin on Sundays when the weather's bad. I love you factually. That's different from saying, Risa, I love you truly. That states a truth that transcends facts. And when the Bible tells us that the wisdom of the world is foolishness, it's not saying it's useless. It's telling us that it's foolish to try to use the methodologies and techniques of science to explore the truth about God. For a scholarly book on that subject, you can read Peter Berger's In Praise of Doubt. In it, he says, one of doubt's primary functions is to defer judgment. Doubt is particularly opposed to hasty judgment, prejudgment, and prejudice. And yet, there's a great risk here. It's at this point that doubt should be doubted. After all, judgments can't be avoided in life. Eventually, Choices have to be made. Actions have to be taken. In a sense, not choosing is actually a choice also, and usually a tragic one. To put it concisely, doubt without limits leads to both individual and collective paralysis. You can sit on the sidelines just so long, and then the plane leaves, whether you're on it, or not. Decisions get made one way or another. When an eminent and intellectual theologian was asked his most important findings after years of study, sort of like my brilliant friend, he says, here's what I learned. Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. Now, All of that, all of that, and you're saying, boy, that was a lot. We're ready for my brilliant friend's favorite passage of Scripture. He's clung to it for decades. In Mark's Gospel, chapter 9, there is an incident that is described in the life of Christ that mirrors much of what we see today. The religious experts who are so certain were busy arguing their theology and their methodology. They were so certain, no possibility of being wrong. And what they didn't see, because they were so certain, was all the human need all around them, all the hurting people. And so there is a father that comes into the story whose son had been tormented with an evil spirit. He was at the end of his rope. And he was in two minds about Jesus' ability to help him. Because he'd tried so long. He'd worked 
so hard. He'd endured so much heartache. And so he says, if you can do anything, do it. Have a heart and help us. Jesus said, if? There are no ifs among believers. Anything can happen. And no sooner were the words out of his mouth than the father cried, then I believe. Help me with my doubts. Jesus, who never responded to unbelief, showed the man that he recognized the statement as honest doubt and he healed his son. Fortunately for us, God is more certain, more faithful, more gracious than our doubting views of him. How much better to offer up a weak prayer like the Father in our text than allow our doubts to harden into unbelief or a life of cynicism. For those of you who grew up in the church and are of a certain age and you know who you are, you will remember this oddity called singing hymns. And a lot of them, most of them maybe, were written in the 19th century. That's how old you are, if you remember what I'm talking about. (laughs) And some of them are more popular than others. Like the hymn entitled, Just As I Am. Written in those days when it seemed like everybody was a believer and nobody was a doubter. And because of that, it's easy to miss the words from the third stanza of that hymn. Just as I am, though tossed about with many a conflict, many a doubt, fightings and fears within and without, O Lamb of God, I come. I come. And so right now, if you're like the father in our gospel story, with your doubts and your fears, here's what you can do. You can respond to God's revelation by your own best lights. You can struggle to understand all that can be understood. And you can have reverence for what you can't. And you can act beyond your certain knowledge in the faith that such action is blessed. Oh, and one more thing. You can pray with Martin Luther and our desperate father in our gospel story. Dear Lord, although I'm sure of my position, I'm unable to sustain it without you. Dear God, help me or I'm lost. And as older translations translate our desperate father's prayer, Lord, I believe. Help thou 
my unbelief.